right, we will dismiss the four to six-year-olds for junior church at this time. So if you are ages four to six, feel free to make your way back to the back room there for junior church. All right, I've got a question for you guys this morning. Maybe you can tell by the prompt there on the screen. Have you ever heard the phrase before, if it's too good to be true, what? Probably isn't, Probably isn't right? <laughs> yes, so I thought I knew that phrase. I'm naturally a skeptical person. I don't think that I generally fall for these too good to be true type scenarios, but a couple years ago, when I was at school, I got an email from a faculty member telling me about this money-making opportunity that was just way too good to pass up. And in my defense, just a couple of things to throw out there before I tell you what that money-making opportunity was. Okay, first of all, this is a small Christian college and a faculty member sends me an email. You know, if it was just Joe Schmo off the street, someone whose name I didn't recognize, I'm probably not replying to his email. But this is a small school, a faculty member, someone that we should all you know, more or less know if he sends me an email. Okay, there's probably some credibility to this email here. And secondly, college students will do literally anything for money. So you know, I think back to my college days. I did some normal stuff like moving. I did some landscaping with my brother. But I also did some stranger things. I was once a substitute math teacher at a school for a day. And then I would also donate blood for gift cards. So that should just give you like a, like a sense of how like people, especially college students, will do literally anything for money. So when I get this email from someone on staff at school that if I simply put a Mountain Dew decal on my car, they will pay me $250 a week, I was like, I'm in. Like, I rattle off a reply. I mean, talk about passive income for a college student. All I have to do is put a Mountain Dew decal on my car. Hey, I'll dye my beard Mountain Dew green for $250 a week, right? And I'm already, the gears are already turning like, okay, my brother and I share our car, so does that mean I, I owe him like $125? Or can I somehow like pocket $200 and give him $50 a week? So I'm going. I send an email off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, can you give me more information about this? And as I'm sure you guys can guess by now, what? I probably never heard back from this guy, did I? And instead, we get an email from the university saying, hey, just a warning to all the students. Uh, some emails have been hacked. Please don't reply to scammers or give personal information away. And I'm like, oi. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. You know, and thankfully, my embarrassment of that story uh, was the worst of the consequences that I faced. But I think that it reinforced this idea that we all have in our heart of hearts that if something is too good to be true, it probably isn't. And if I could just encourage you this morning that that is not so with the promises of God. We're going to read about some things that from our perspective are literally going to seem too good to be true. That God would lavish his love on us, 
and show us mercy that we do not deserve. And God's word says it's true. All of it. So to see those things, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, if you're not there already in your Bible. Romans chapter 8. When Pastor John asked me to preach today, I almost prefer him give me the passage because it, it's almost harder for me to find something to preach on my own. But my mind immediately came to Romans chapter 8. It was one of the first texts that I thought of. I know that it's difficult to have favorite passages of Scripture sometimes. It can vary depending on what you've been reading currently through the Bible. It can vary based on how you're feeling any given day. But for a while now, Romans chapter 8 has been one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I'm excited to be able to just open up this text and talk you through some of these glorious, almost too-good-to-be-true promises of God. Our text kind of begins this morning in verse 31, and you'll say kind of why. You'll see why in just a second here. Verse 31 asks this question. What then shall we say to these things? And with that question, we should be asking ourselves as good students of the Bible, okay, well, what are these things that Paul is talking about? The whole chapter has been slowly building towards this climax of a question, and Paul, what he is about to say in verses 31 and following, hinges on the verses that have come before. And so we need to go back and answer the question, what are these things of verse 31 to truly grasp the depth of the riches of God in verses 31 and following? So we'll start at the very beginning of the chapter and just make a couple of observations through the text answering this question, what are these things that Paul is talking about? And the very first thing we see is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, when is the last time that you considered that a part from Christ, you stand condemned. That given the choice between God's way and your way, you willingly chose your way and took upon yourself the condemnation of God. And even if you wanted to be reconciled back to God. There was nothing that you could do in and of yourself to be drawn back to him. No amount of good works, no amount of money given, no amount of volunteer hours gets you back in good graces with God. If you were to stand before God in a courtroom, the verdict is guilty. And the punishment is eternal condemnation as you are separated from God for all eternity. Things were pretty grim, huh? <laughs> but there was one who was condemned for you. 
there was one who was condemned in your place. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Isaiah chapter 53, and we read that there was one who was pierced, who was crushed, who was chastised, not for his own wrongdoing, but for ours. Perhaps you remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just a couple of weeks ago, the Old Covenant is called the Ministry of Condemnation. Because that's what its outcome was, was death. But in Christ, you have been declared righteous. There is no condemnation, chapter 8 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to look back at chapter 7 and just listen to Paul describe this tension that he feels in his own Christian life as he talks about the war that is taking place in his soul between his flesh and the spirit. We see in verse 18, Paul says, we're in chapter 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that not describe all of us? We have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I know that no good thing dwells in me. You can see that Paul is almost exasperated as he talks about in the following verses. I know what I should be doing and I can't do it. And what I, I know that I shouldn't be doing, I end up doing anyway. And look what he cries out in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul quickly reminds himself that Jesus can and Jesus did, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way. I've included it on the screen for you there. It, it describes what we're reading about in these words, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But it gets even better than this because we're answering the question, what are these things of verse 31? Paul gives us another thing that we can add to that list in verse 14 of chapter 8. We read, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we see in this next section of scripture here that it's not just our position that changes to God. It's not that we're just no longer condemned, but it is our relationship to God that changes. We're called his sons. And look at how that took place exactly in the text there. Verse 15 you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, adoption as we know it is a wonderful thing. To take someone who has no blood relation to you and to promise to take care of them, to love them, to take care of their physical and whatever other need they have, 
and to say, you're mine. You're my son. I have adopted you. I remember a couple of years ago being in a courthouse with my aunt and uncle, and they had been fostering a little boy named Jake for about a year. And in that courtroom, the judge declared him to be a Steindorf. And in that instance, all of the people in the room became his family. And he had, all of a sudden, 20 cousins and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And he went, he went from what would have been a pretty unstable home life if he had stayed with his birth mom to being part of the family. How awesome, then, the adoption of us into the family of God. Galatians has something to say about it. Let me show you what it says. We're called the sons of God. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. You see what's taking place here? In Christ, we have gone from being a slave to sin, to the prince of the power of the year, to Satan. And God has said, I'm making you a son. But notice here in Romans chapter 8, what goes along with being a son? Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you understand the significance of verse 17? It is saying... If you are a son of God, if you have been adopted into the family, then that makes you an heir with Jesus Christ. One person I read put it this way, that what belongs to Jesus will also belong to us. And you might be asking yourself, well then, what is Christ's inheritance. What is it that God has promised to his son that we will also have a part in sharing? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, I'll just list one thing for you. Hebrews 1 says that God appointed Jesus the heir of all things. So get this. If we are heirs with Christ, and this is honestly a little bit difficult for me to even process, but if we are heirs with Christ, then that means that one day all things will too be ours. Can you imagine this? That Christ would share his inheritance with us? We who are not like cousins that were adopted into family, but someone who has been plucked out of the filth and mire their own sin. And God adopts us and says, the inheritance that I've given to Christ, you're going to take part of it as well. 
unbelievable. We could see this in Revelation for sure, this idea, but I actually want to show you uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, this promise that if we endure, we will also reign with him. And what Jesus reigns over in the last day, 1 Peter calls our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is reserved in heaven for us, we too will have a part in reigning with Christ. That is awesome. All right, we've got a couple more things to quickly consider. Third, what else are these things? We see it in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. And here's what we see from this text of Scripture, that the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. I trust we know about the intercessory work of Christ from the book of Hebrews. But here we see that the Holy Spirit, in our weakness, when we don't even know what to pray for us, intercedes for us according to the will of God. And it's this perfect relationship because the Spirit and God are one. The text says that he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. They work together in perfect harmony. And it's awesome to consider that our prayers, the effectiveness of them, is not based off of our ability to articulate what it is that we need before God, but that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is right there underlying our prayers and aligning them to the perfect will of the Father. Lastly, we'll just list off one more thing, and that's found in verse 28 of this text, where we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we need to be careful here with this text of Scripture to understand what it is and what it is not saying. This text of Scripture is not saying that you will never again have any hardship as a Christian. That if all things work together for good, then your life is just going to be peachy and sunshine and just, wow, this is awesome. All things are working together for good. I'm going to claim this verse as my own. It's not what this verse is saying. What it is saying is that there is a good God who sovereignly orchestrates all of the events of our life and ensures that the outcome of those events is what? That it is good. And we can see the epitome of that goodness on display in verses 29 and 30 when we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God truly does work out all things for good for those who love him, 
I kind of think of like a corollary passage of scripture as being James when it talks about um, rejoicing in the midst of trials. We're like, what? I don't really understand that. How are we supposed to count it all joy when these trials fall upon us? I think it's similar to understanding that the trying of our faith work is steadfastness, as the ESV says, to understanding that, yes, even as Paul is going to say, on the horizon there are some bad things coming, understand that there is a good God who is sovereignly orchestrating all of these events for good. And I just want to remind you of one simple thing, that God's plan of redemption was not a plan B after Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't like, whoa, okay, now i got to come up with another plan. This text of Scripture is saying, as Ephesians would also say, from before the foundation of the world, God called you, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, and he justified you, and he will glorify you. So God had us as individuals in mind from the outset in whom his plan of redemption would apply to. And so with that understanding in mind of those four things on the screen, what are these things that Paul's talking about? No condemnation. We're sons of God and heirs with Christ. The Spirit intercedes for us in our prayer. All things work together for good. Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that is where our call to worship, excuse me, our scripture reading comes into play this morning. Perhaps you were wondering, like, that seemed kind of random. Why are we reading from 2 Chronicles 32 this morning? This is why. Here was the nation of Judah surrounded by Sennacherib and his army. You can imagine the terror, the fear of these people as they look out and see we are in trouble. But this is what Hezekiah says, if you notice this, as we were reading through it, I believe it's verse 7. Hezekiah says this about Sennacherib. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And if we remember from the uh, parallel passage of Scripture, what happens? God sends one angel who in one night wipes out 185,000 of the soldiers. We might think of another example in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6 when uh, the, the nation of Syria is hunting down, I think it's Elisha, and his servant sees this army and he's also terrified, like, oh, what is going to happen? And God says, Lord, would you open his eyes? And he sees that on the outside of that army, there are chariots of fire and the army of the Lord in the mountain. We might think of David when he's fighting Goliath and he says, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts. And here's the point of our scripture reading this morning. If we can see what God being for someone looks like in the Old Testament, how much greater than God being for us in the new and to see what he has done for us with his son, with the spirit, the love that he's demonstrated for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can thwart God's purposes. Nothing can stand in his way. He's for us. And now we come to, in what is probably my favorite chapter, my favorite verse in this whole chapter, verse 32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, sometimes we use this phrase, spared no expense, to talk about how someone went to great lengths to maybe host a party or to plan a vacation or a wedding. Perhaps you have been down to uh, the Newport mansions down in Rhode Island and you've seen what I've only heard about, these houses that are so ornate, so much wealth on display, and we would rightly say that the builders spared no expense in the construction of their buildings. Look what this text of scripture is saying about God and what he did in his plan of redemption. That God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. His perfect, spotless, righteous son was allowed to be butchered on a cross like a criminal so that we might have forgiveness of sins. God spared no expense in drawing us to himself. Look at the logic of Paul in the second part of this verse. When he says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give Jesus to meet our greatest need, if God has overseen our calling, our justification, our glorification, do you doubt then that he would withhold something lesser from you? When we think about, you know, today being Father's Day, in the book of Matthew, when we see that Listen, we don't ask our earthly fathers for a piece of bread and they give us a stone. We don't ask for an egg and they give us a scorpion. How much better is our heavenly father then? Will he not graciously give us all things? Sometimes we doubt God's provision in life. Sometimes we say, hey, I could really use X, Y, or Z. You know, why isn't God giving it to me? And if we're not careful we can let that kind of thinking begin to spiral out of control. And next thing you know, we're asking questions like, does God know the needs that I have? Does God care about the needs that I have? Can I remind you from this text, God did not spare Jesus in meeting your greatest need. He certainly knows about the other needs that you have and he will not withhold those things from you if you need them. Let me echo what we see on the screen. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul begins to put that question to the test with a series of questions in the following verses. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We might say it this way. Who can bring an accusation against us that will stick? that will hold, that will prove to be true, and so change the outcome of our eternal destiny? Is there anyone or anything that could do that? Remember one of the things that Satan is called? He's called the accuser of the brethren. He does this very thing. We can see it on display in the book of Job. When he's before God, he says, 
I think, I think Job's just following you because you've blessed him. I don't think he really loves you. And that's just not an isolated instance. We see in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan accuses the brethren day and night before God. So should we fear even Satan, our greatest enemy, standing before God and making these charges against us, making these accusations against us, saying, God, look at that sinner. Look at that wicked person. You should cast him off. He has no right to be your son. He's the problem. What is Paul's answer to that question? It is God who justifies. God himself has declared us righteous. God himself has said no. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No charge made against God's elect sticks. There's another question. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? We've already considered together this morning that we are all deserving of condemnation. Who who, who can rightly condemn us? And the answer again to this question, Paul answers, is astounding. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The one who has every right to condemn us instead died for us and was condemned for us. And now he's alive, Paul says, and he's interceding on your very behalf right now. God is for you. Who can be against you? Finally, Paul asks this question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and he goes on to quote Psalm 44 here, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul asks, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is a resounding no. Look at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus has gone ahead of us. He has paved the way with a victory of his own. And I just wanted to show you a couple passages of scripture that illustrate that. Uh, This one in John 16, I love. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, listen, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, maybe later, says to his disciples, he's talking about the devil, and, and he says, he has no claim on me. Look what First John says about this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. And it is our faith in the risen Son of God that makes us more than conquerors. When God is for us, who can be against us? Hopefully you're understanding nothing. In case Paul's thinking we didn't pick up what he was laying down, 
he reiterates in verse 38, again, another list of things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, spiritual forces cannot separate you from the love of God. The future cannot separate you from the love of God. Earthly powers cannot separate you from the love of God. Look at the list. None of these things, even death itself, cannot separate you from the love of God. He is holding us tightly. And as the Gospels say, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. But I want you to notice something with me about this text of Scripture, and that is this. That Paul here is not denying the existence of some of the things on the list. In fact, the way in which he words them almost makes you think that we should come to expect some of these things in our lives as we're Christians. We should come to expect persecution. I mean, look at 1 Peter. It says, if you're a Christian, expect suffering. They go hand in hand with each other. So what are we supposed to do with this? This idea that we're suffering even to the point of dying there's distress and nakedness and famine. How do, how do we reconcile that with verse 28 that says, all things work together for good? Well, sometimes in the process of all things working together for good, we're going to experience some things that are actually pretty difficult that we probably would not wish upon ourselves they were like, yeah, I, no thanks. I'd really not go through distress and persecution and even to the point of death. And if we go through any of these things, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, what would be the wrong conclusion to make then from this chapter? We could never say, even in the midst of these things, that God does not love us. That is the point of this whole sermon. We can never go through something terrible in life, even as terrible as something on the list here, and conclude that God does not care, that God does not know, that God does not love me. That could not be further from the truth. I hope as we've considered these things together this morning, you have been reminded instead of the depth of God's love for you. He didn't spare his own son. We have a hard time loving our best friends. We have a hard time loving our family members. Look what Romans chapter 5 says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And I didn't even include verse 8 on there because I know we know it. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. That is the extent of the love of God for his own. So what do we do with this text? This week, when you begin to doubt God's goodness, as I have in the past, let's say it's the middle of the week, it's a Thursday, and you've been grinding all week, and life is hard, and you're discouraged, and you're beginning to feel that sinister grip of discontentment, take hold of your heart. And you begin to have these questions that arise. Does God know? Does he care? Come back here to this passage of scripture and remind yourself, oh, he does. He cares, all right. In fact, he didn't even spare his own son to redeem you to himself. Maybe there's a bit of a rebuke in this passage of scripture as well, where if we're thinking these things, perhaps you need to stop and ask yourself, listen, I've been given Christ. What more do I need in this life? Do I really need Christ plus something else to make me happy, to make me content? We should be content in Christ alone and trust that God will graciously give us the things that we need in addition to him. The depth of his love is astounding. And secondly, I think that knowing how secure we are in the love of God should give us boldness. As we consider that literally nothing can get in the way of God and his love for me, then let's go live like it. And let's go out into the world. And yeah, you know what? People might not like us. Guess what? They hated our master too. People might persecute us. It might get so bad, as was happening, you might get put to death. And Paul says, listen, even death itself won't separate you from the love of God. In fact, the opposite is true. You will be in the presence of that God. So be content, remind yourself of just some simple scriptural truths, and live boldly. Live securely in the love of God for you. Lastly, we started off this whole thing by reminding ourselves that God's promises are not too good to be true. It's pretty awesome. Actually, 2 Corinthians says, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. So if I could go back to the screen, I won't, but we have no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. We're the sons of God, heirs with Christ. The Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. All things work together for good to those who love God. What do we do with this? We're about to sing a song titled, And Can It Be? A familiar one to many of us, but one in which the hymn writer is asking the very questions that we're asking. Is this too good to be true? Can it really be? And he quotes from this text in the last verse, no condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. So although it is familiar, 
please sing it out. Let it be a prayer of sorts where you with this hymn writer are discovering the glory of the promises of God and saying, can it really be? Is it really so? Let's pray and then we'll sing it. Lord, we are just floored at the depth of your love for us. We do not know what it is to love like you have loved us. Lord, I pray that as you have said in your word, one of the hallmarks of a Christian would be that people can see our love for one another. Would you make that true in our own lives? Where we don't just take hold of your love and don't dispense it to anyone else, but we are careful to show other people the love that we have received. Lord, give us boldness in our life, knowing that nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, help us to be content in Christ, to trust your provision, to look back and say, you have provided your son for me. It, it, these are astounding truths, Lord, things that we can build our faith on. I pray that you would send us out of here to be bold witnesses for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.